0: Father, as we come to the end of this series on wisdom, I know I personally feel my deficit. The many ways that my words and my life reveal an internal folly. The many ways that even as I obey you, I think that I've earned something from you and that I am entitled to blessing the many ways that I have struggled under things that haven't gone the way that I wanted and internally accused you. My guess, Lord, is as we've been in this conversation with you through your word, that we have all felt similarly. And yet, Lord, as you turn to speak now, not simply through what we understand from your word But as you turn to address Job and to address all of us through your living and active word. We need your help once again. We need your help to have our ears opened and our eyes opened. To have our hearts softened once again so that we can receive from you what you intend. Lord, at the end of the day, may we fear you, trust you, and be wise before we turn to your word, though, we are grateful for so many things. We're grateful for, Lord, what's ahead in this next year, for the plans that we're making in it. And yet, Lord, at the same time, we are grateful for what feel like small victories. A few weeks ago, we asked you to show favor to Joe Siebold as what seemed like his weakened body was coming to the end, and we thank you that for the small victories that have been there. Lord, we thank you that he was able to turn to therapy and not to hospice. We thank you for the way that you've sustained Gus and for the way that you have continued to bless us in our many weaknesses. Lord, if our days in the future contain more weakness or an increase of our strength, we resolve to trust you. And we pray, help us to do that by making us wiser through your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you've been with us for these last 11 weeks, it's the 12th week. We took a, a, a week off in there when the kids were in with us, and we thought it unwise to talk that Sunday about the death of all of Job's children after we had invited all the children's ministry kids in with us. But we are really here at the end of our series in wisdom. And if the idea of getting a biblical picture of wisdom, not just from the book of Proverbs, but from the book of Proverbs, then informed by Ecclesiastes, and then tested in the book of Job, sounds appealing to you, go on YouTube, and you'll find what we've talked about here for a while. This series, as I was praying, has been for me very... Humbling because I come to a passage that reveals so many deficiencies in me. And as we often do with God's word, we realize the things that we understand are enough to uh, condemn us in some ways. The things that we understand from God's word are enough to undo us and make us realize our desperation for Him. And yet, then there are times that I have, I have read through the book of Job. And by the way, kudos to those of you who got a gift card last week because you had taken me up on that. Sorry, I was away. F- I'm not sorry, I was away from you. It was great to be away from you last week. <laughs> We were on a lake in North Carolina with my family, and I had a great time. So I missed you a bit. I had a great time while I was there, but I'm glad, greatly glad to be back with you. But yeah, kudos to those of you who read Job. Good job. Way to go. Um, But if you've done that, if you've read Job like I have in the past and you're freshly reading it again, there's a certain sense when we're in this book that it's just like, I don't understand this. I can't even handle what I understand, but I'm overwhelmed on every successive reading by how little i can comprehend god's truest nature. And this last bit of Job feels very much like god sort of coming out from behind the curtain and saying, "All right, Job, you wanted to have a conversation with me? Let's square up. Let's have a real conversation." Because in the book of Job as we were introduced to James, it's all or introduced to to Job uh, in the very beginning, it's almost as though Job is like the best of us. He's called blameless. He's he's introduced as somebody. That, that, that God couldn't find fault with, that the adversary who is introduced in the very beginning of the book, called in our, in our translation Satan, uh, the adversary, the one in the courtroom who's saying, God, this pattern you have of just blessing righteous people, it feels like it has a fatal flaw, that people could only serve you because they get good things from you. What if you wiped that principle off the board and we just tested this guy's righteousness? And for the first couple chapters, his righteousness is tested because he loses everything that would have made him great, the greatest in all the East. Everything that you think makes him great all of his wealth, all of his reputation, it's all stripped away. He's left bleeding on the floor, and and Satan comes and has just taken away things from him successively, so that at the end, you might think, oh, this man isn't so great anymore. And yet, at the very end, it says, in all this, Job didn't sin. He didn't accuse God. But then in chapter 3, Job begins to speak. And in it, we don't hear then anymore some sort of static presentation of Job as though we can't really relate to him, he starts talking and he starts talking with words we've probably, even though we haven't used those exact words, we've sure felt them. This isn't fair. What's going on? on I'm perplexed I'm in pain I used to have this standing reputation among people and now the same people I was teaching before are kind of one-upping me and they're coming to comfort me but it feels kind of like when the pastor comes in pride and prejudice to like kind of visit the people that have suffered so greatly and you realize oh this guy's just smug that's the kind of comfort he's getting even the the wife that God spares comes to him and basically says, man, you should just curse God and die. Job's got nobody. And by the time that he speaks, and then we hear three successive cycles of somebody answering Job and Job responding. The next friend answering that response, and then Job responding to that, and then the third friend responding, and then Job responding to that. That cycle of Job interacting with his three friends happens three times, and there's so many words spent, but basically there's one point made. You could say it in the positive, or you could say it in the negative. The positive way of saying it sounds a lot like the worldly concept of karma. Good things happen to good people. One hand washes the other. You know, pay it forward kind of thing, because that's just the way the universe works. To say it in the negative, it would be some sort of like divine retribution. The bad things that happen are because of bad things you did. And so we meet this Job, right? And we find out in the very beginning, there was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. And we don't know where he is. He's not an Israelite. His friends aren't Israelites. This is written at a time where we can't find a timestamp to it. There's no reference to the law or to other historical figures in Israel's history. There's no reference to a temple. And so we just get this sense, almost like Adam is torn out of the pages of Genesis 3. He's presented with all the temptation and he succeeds. Even when his wife fails, he succeeds And I read that and I'm kind of like, I've never been Job. I've never met anybody like Job. But this book is written to say, let's pretend there was someone like Job. I want you to meet Job, the blameless, the greatest, and the man who would even do, we read in the very beginning, he would make sacrifices for the hypothetical sins of his kids when they got together to party. This guy was... Above reproach. He was he was unlike us. He was the best of us. And then he suffered like none of us have. And so this extremely great blameless man is extremely suffering and we're relating to him because we're hearing in his words, in his friend's words, that sense of what happens inside all of us. So a movie... I remember seeing, we watched it a few times. It was about, uh, this is a really weird concept, but it's about a guy whose wife dies, and her heart is donated to a, a young lady who's struggling, and then the guy falls in love with the young lady. Now, you can see all the dilemmas, you know, But when all of that truth comes around and the girl is just faced with this fact that, wait, I've got his dead wife's heart beating inside me. She's struggling with it when she's sitting with her friends. And the language that comes out of her mouth was, what was God thinking? And it's just something she blurts out. And it's, it's just there so raw in front. And it's not as though this was a particularly religious movie. But it's a movie that brought God into the equation. Why? Because it announces the concept that we can evaluate God based on our criteria. It's the same quote that we got out of The Sound of Music, right? Somewhere in my youth and childhood, I must have done something good. That's why good things happen. Why do bad things happen? Because there was a test I needed to learn or pass. There was a something I, I was deficient in. There's some sin in my life. It's the same problem that, that occurs in John chapter 9, right? As he passed by, he, Jesus, saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. And what was the work of God? Having said these things, he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes in the mud and said to him, go wash in the pool of Siloam. So he went and washed and came back seeing. What was all that time like blind? We don't know. But we know that Jesus is righteous to have announced that a man suffered with something all his life and it had nothing to do with his sin, nothing to do with his parents' sins, which in the Jewish thinking of the day is the only algorithm they can figure out for why suffering happens, right? Because if you're not suffering, that elevates you, means you must not have sinned. But if you are suffering, then that demotes you because you must be a greater sinner because of the proportion of your suffering. And doesn't that stink if that's the way you interpret bad things that happen in your life? That just doesn't work. But in our way of thinking in this Proverbs series, that is Proverbs 101. That is wisdom 101. I do these things and good things happen. I do these bad things and bad things happen. And God has to operate by those principles. Karma or retribution. Those are the only things that that work for him. And if he violates the terms of that agreement, then there's something wrong with God. And that's sort of been what Job has been saying over and over. I want my day in court. I want my day in court. The whole book of Job is presented in the beginning like this royal courtroom. They're coming before the king. And the one comes and says, I have a proposition. We need to challenge something. Give me your best. Here's Job. Okay, let's take away this rule that you bless all the righteous ones, and let's see what happens. And as we see what happens, Job has referred back to that royal courtroom setting, and he said him multiple times, I want my day in court. I want my day in court. I want somebody to have to listen to me, and if I could present my case to God, he would see my blamelessness. So apparently he's unjust or he's blind. One of the two. I don't know what's really going on, but I need to speak to God but before we get to that scene there's one other scene first and it, it, it's the chapter that T.C. read for us in the middle of those three cycles there's one little moment and if you read it at the beginning Job's been talking in chapter 28 he's talking but then chapter 28 begins and it says and Job was talking and then chapter 9 begins or chapter twenty nine begins, and it says, "And Job continued talking." So it's kind of weird. I, I I don't know. Sometimes I have conversations with Christine this way, where we'll be talking, we'll in the car, we're talking. She says, "There's something we really need to talk about." I'm like, mm, "What are we doing? Like right now? What have we been doing for a while?" It's not as though she's forgetful of the fact that we've been having a conversation or that we're in each other's presence or that she's speaking and I'm listening and she's speaking and I'm listening, you know, that that kind of thing. But the other way, it's not that she just speaks all the time and I listen all the time. (laughs) Anybody who knows me would be very aware of that. (laughs) But there's some moment Christine's trying to introduce to me. She's saying, we've been chatting, it's time for us to be talking. And it's kind of like the person who's put the book of Job together kind of inserts chapter 28 kind of that same way. Job's clearly talking. And when chapter 28 is done, Job's still clearly talking. But it's like he says, hey, Job was saying something right here in chapter 28. Really need you to pay attention to it. Listen to how chapter 28 goes. I'm just going to read you some some selected verses. He says, surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the core. Skip down to verse 9. Man puts his hand to the flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks and his eye sees every precious thing. So first 10, 11 verses, basically what, what Job is recounting there is we're pretty impressive. Eagles can go all the way up in the air, but have you ever seen an eagle channel down into the rock and explore the hidden treasures? Have you ever seen the mine for gold? No. Do you see any other animal doing that? No. Who gets down into the depths of the earth like us? We're we're kind of impressive. And if he was talking today, he might reference a whole mess of other things that we've done that are impressive, but he's using this metaphor. And then he says in verse 12, but where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? He repeats that again in verse 20 from where then does wisdom come and where is the place of understanding? Going back to verse 13 and 14, man does not know it's worth and it's not found in the land of the living. So you can go anywhere you want to across the planet. And you can go to the depths of the seas, you can go into the depths of the earth. It kind of has that, that vibe of, Lord, where could I go from your presence? I could go anywhere, but you're there, right? Here he's going, we could look everywhere on the earth. In fact, you might even think that the only way you're going to be wise is if you die. But verse 14 says, the deep is, says it's not in me, and the sea says it's not in me. Later on, then, uh, Abaddon or Abaddon, or we'll just let one of the Hebrew scholars, because TC, just so you know, we have not one, not two, not three, but four seminarians with us today. So if you have questions about the book of Job, Mary, Michael, Grace, and Joshua, and probably by some derivation of you know experience, Mordecai, knows way more about how to read the Hebrew of Job than we do. So you guys got any questions, you can just go see them. And for the beginning, we just need to know how to pronounce this word. But it does refer to this idea. Go anywhere you want, as deep as you want. You can find some pretty rocks, but you're not finding wisdom. Even if you get to the very end and you die, death is going to tell you, man, we've heard about wisdom, but we really don't know where to get it. Well, that's kind of depressing. Until you get to the end of chapter 28, God, verse 23, understands the way to it, and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens, and he says to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. Sound familiar? Maybe because it is. This is Job kind of reminding us of its place in the broader conversation of wisdom literature within the Bible. This is what we've heard from Proverbs over and over and over. It's the place that, that the, the, the author of and the speaker of Ecclesiastes eventually returned back to. And here in the middle of Job's rant, he just kind of pauses and gets us back. And then 29 goes into his rant again. God, God, where are you? God, can I get my day in court? And God essentially says in chapter 38 then, yes. Now remember, there were three friends back and forth, back and forth with them. At the end of that cycle, we hear the words, these are the ends of, uh, this is the end of the words of Job. But then for six chapters, chapter 32 through 37, which is six, I know that always looks like five, but it's actually six. Six chapters, this unknown friend shows up and he starts to talk and he blasts the friends for their their idiotic thinking about God. He's not restricted the way you say he is. And he blasts Job for the fact that Job's more interested in defending himself than defending God. But we do have this dilemma going on, right? Job is righteous. Job is suffering. God is righteous, but God is allowing the suffering. So What's going on? God, you have to speak. And so starting in chapter 38, God begins to speak. And he makes kind of a fundamental point. And it could go kind of like this. Only God caused, manages, explores, and provides for his staggeringly mysterious, chaotic, and unsafe world. And yet he loves it. Listen to the way God talks. I'm just going to read for a little while. Chapter 38, verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, not as in contrast to a boy, not in contrast to a woman. And I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what was its basis sunk? Who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb when I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no further. And here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you entered into the springs of the sea or walked the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare, if you know all this. And then without kind of waiting for him, he just plows back in. He says successively, listen to these verses, just where's the way to the dwelling of light? Hmm? Have you entered the storehouses of snow? Do you know the ordinances of heaven? Can you establish their rule on the earth? Can you lift up your voice to the clouds? Can you hunt the prey for the lions or satisfy the appetite of the young lions? What is God doing? He's taking together everything he's done in the past and everything he's doing in the present. He's mixing it all up together in one big casserole and saying, do you see the difference? you really want to talk to me about how I run the world. Great. Let me break it down to you in some of its most basic components. Make it snow. Let me just start there. Just go make it snow. Oh will wait. Having trouble finding out where I keep all the snow? Uh, no, makes sense. Well, let's go to water. You can see, all right? How's the ocean work? Where are its limits? Why is it bounded that way? And if we just want to, you know, go real broad, were you there whenever I, like, brought land up? When I separated all this stuff? Like, who was doing the work in Genesis 1 and 2? Who's doing the work today? And if you can explain, if you can declare, if you even know any of these, you don't have to do them all. But if we can just get back to the key word I want you to understand in the primary bit of this, it is only God caused, manages, explores, and provides for this world. Your beef is that it's mysterious and chaotic and unsafe. But that was my doing. This is good and unsafe. This is good and chaotic. This is good and mysterious. That's the world I made for you to exist in. And Joe, fundamentally, you're challenging that first and foremost. When you don't like that the world we live in can feel unfair or tough, when you don't like the fact that you suffer in the context of the realm I've put you in, the main thing you're challenging is whether or not this world, though unsafe, is still good. And I'm the only one who caused, manages, explores, and provides for this unsafe world. You you heard that through chapters 38 and 39, right? You Read this. If you you didn't take up the challenge to read all of this and you have been suffering and you want to hear God's grounding you back in a wise way to keep suffering, start here in chapter 38 and 39. And don't just read it as though God is talking to Job. Let God speak to you about the things that feel currently difficult and unfair for you. And remember, only God does this. I can't do any of these things. I can't even explain them. I don't even know where they're coming from. And when all that first point is done, that God does all this for his mysterious world, the Lord then, chapter 40, verse 1, said to Job, all right, square up with me, look me in the eye. Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God let him answer. He's basically looking at Job and saying, all right, that was my first volley. I just served the ball at you from my side of the court to your side of the court. And from what I can tell, I think I just aced you about a hundred times in a row. You didn't even see the ball going past. I just served and I served and I served and I served. And you just stood there and the ball went past. But if you have anything to say, please, now's the time. Speak up. And Job answers wisely. Then Job answered the Lord and said, chapter 40, verse 3, or 40, verse 4, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer. Twice, but I will proceed no further. That seems a wise reply. We have seen Job the blameless, we've seen Job the accused, and this morning we are meeting Job the silenced, really. Job is deciding, I will say nothing further. And so it seems like then, that should be the end of the book of Job, maybe. But God's not done with him, nor with us. And so chapter 40, verse 6 Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, sorry, dress for action like a man. I will question you and you will make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me and that you may be right? And if you're thinking about Job with his hand over his mouth thinking, wow, I just got walloped and good. I challenged God and he gave me a first response for God to say, okay, that was round one. Are you ready for round two? I understand you're scraping yourself down there. It's time to stand up. Look me in the eye. We're not done yet. Because the main thing that God wants to communicate to him isn't just about the created order of the world. It's about the specific application of the principle that, that Job and his friends have been saying God is denying. And that's that you're supposed to punish the wicked here. And you're not allowed to punish the righteous here. Or maybe to use a different word than punish, you can't let bad things happen to good people, but bad things can only happen to bad people. And yet the question, remember, that's been set in the very beginning that I encouraged you not to think of as just purely satanic to be forgotten, isn't why do good things happen to bad people? Or why do bad things happen to good people? It's why should good things happen to anybody? Does God have some obligation? Is he indebted to us to do good things to us? That's the the question that's been presented in the entire book. And Job's about to hear God's answer. We could summarize the second part of God's answer this way. Only a God who can see, know, restrain, and control the forces of this world can judge and do what is right. And the key word once again is only. To summarize that, though, God begins to speak in chapter 40, verse 9 and says, have you an arm like God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger. Look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low and tread down the wicked where they stead. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. Did you hear the the gist of, of what God's challenging him to do. In the first section, God is challenging Job to remember the day that Job created the earth or to locate the place that God uses in order to be able to provide for the earth or to be able to evaluate the systems that God uses to govern the earth. If, if, if Job can do any of those things in relationship to the created order, then great. Yeah, declare this to me and then we'll talk. Job's like, yeah, I can't do that. Okay, good. But to get to the central part of your accusation here, Job, I will give you one day, rule the universe according to your rule. Punish every wicked thing. And tell me how well that works. It is though God is bringing Job into the intricacies of the supercomputer of the universe and saying, Now, I understand that you just got long division down, right? Tell me how well your long division works in assessing what's going on here, and maybe if I just shut this down for a minute, could you write the algorithm that's going to run the universe? What happens if right now the rule changes and every wicked thing that's done, every wicked thought that's thought, every wicked deed and desire that is accomplished on the earth is immediately punished as it is deserved? What if God started to rule the world that way now? Whoa... What if grace and mercy didn't exist? What if the gospel and the good news were entirely rewritten? What if the only one who could suffer was the one who deserved suffering? Do you understand what goes away if that's the equation that we use to run the universe? That's what Job is being presented with here. Adorn yourself, verse 10, with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself. Now pour out the overflowings of your anger on everyone who's proud and abase them. I want you to look on everybody, verse 12, who's proud, bring them down, tread them down, make the wicked get low and pay them back for what they deserve. What if you get to do that? Could you manage that and what would happen? That's the way the friends have been thinking, right? Job, you know why your kids died? Like one of the worst lines of the whole book. They died because they probably sinned. Only slightly worse is when the one guy comes and starts making up things that Job is doing so that Job later on has to say like, "I, I didn't do any of those things that you're inventing. But that's the way these guys have been thinking and God's like, well, let's just hypothetically do a thought experiment for a minute. What if we actually did that? how many of us walk out of this room? If we use the standard of the holiness of God, then none of us walk out of this room. If that's the new algorithm to govern the universe, then none of us survive it. And yet, God then wants to continue to press this point home. And after reminding him, of how much he doesn't really understand how that could work. He just goes back into the way that he'd been thinking before. Let me just borrow something from chapter 39 for a second. Remember where he's asking the question of what do you see and what's going on? He says, do you know when the mountain mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Is it by your understanding that the hawk soars and spreads his wings towards the south? He's saying, look, I'm the one who sees what's going on. I'm the one who knows what's going on in my complex, chaotic world. Do you give the horse his might? Did you clothe his neck with a mane? Do you make him leap like a locust? His majestic snorting is terrifying. That's all the stuff that he said in the first speech, but now to drive the point home in case like wild animals doing their olden thing without any regard to being tamed or having any like pleasure in what you're doing, they're just doing their own thing. You don't understand a lick of it. These are all animals that I can say and you can see. You can see them in your mind. Maybe you've touched one or two of them. But to really further the point about the distance between us and this holy God, our weakness and his strength, our ignorance and his wisdom. God is going to remind Job of two creatures that are so majestic, we don't really even have language or zoos to be able to contain their description. If you want to keep getting wisdom from God when you are suffering, chapter 39, or sorry, chapters uh, 40, 41 are the place to go in order to meet first a behemoth. Verse 15, behold, behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Verse 19, he's the first of the works of God. So let him who made him bring near his sword. Can one take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? You domesticated your dog. Great job. What if you tried to tame this thing? This great, big old animal. That's the best of the beast world. And people have tried to guess who this thing is. The best we could probably get from kind of our backing of things is like, maybe this is like a brontosaurus. He's out there like a hippo, but with girth, like an elephant, but with girth. He is just so incomprehensibly big and terrifying that the idea of us taming him is just like, it's just ludicrous. But then to move into the sea world, verse 40 or chapter 41, can you draw out the second big creature is called Leviathan with a fish hook? Or can you press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or piece his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? We don't even know what this thing is. Extinct, likely, for long ages. This is a creature Job's familiar with, and we're not. And when God wants to drive home how little Job knows, he talks about stuff we can understand that we really don't, fully understand? And again, we could add to Job kind of with our sense of scientific knowledge. How well do we really understand what's going on? I mean, just take space, right? We first got out into space and the atheistic scientific community said, you know, we were looking for God. We got to space. We didn't see him. Therefore, there's no God. How so foolish that looks right now. You're saying, "So wait, you just broke your atmosphere and you think you explored space." With all that we understand now, our knowledge is growing over and over and over. we just we're getting more and more knowledge, and yet we don't get God. like not at all do we comprehend everything that he's doing. We think everything's been made simply for our pleasure or for our joy, and God's going like. I got stuff going on in the sea that I love, that I made, that you're never going to see, you're never going to understand. And all this stuff is going on because it makes me happy. So chill out. Beyond that, let me introduce you to two beasts that are just so incomprehensibly powerful and dangerous. They're going to represent these forces in this world that will seem to you almost evil, but I'm saying that I'm kind of proud of them. That's the world you live in, represented by the strongest creatures on the earth, the strongest creatures in the sea. And if you touched either of them, they'd take you out. That's the world I put you in. And these forces in this world are ultimately under my control. And he ends this way. On earth, there is not his like A creature without fear. He sees everything that's high. He's king over all the sons of pride. Do you ever see one of those memes where people talk about how people look like their dogs? It's kind of the point God's making here. I got two pets. Behemoth and Leviathan. I'm really like them. And you'd be terrified of them. So, what do we do when life gets hard? Job has decided he's not going to say anything, but it's clear at the end of chapter 41, it's time for Job to say something again. Because God challenged him to just keep his hand over his mouth isn't quite going to work once you've gotten sort of beat down again. And so Job wants to remind himself and all of us that only God ascertains the purposes behind all of our suffering. This is fundamentally why we can have a a passage like 1 Peter 3 read to us in the midst of our suffering. Where God can say, finally, all of you, I want you to bless. For This is what you're called to, is a life of blessing. But then he clarifies a little bit what it would mean to actually bless somebody else. He says, I I want you to bless. Turn away from evil. I want you to seek peace. And that sounds great. Yeah, man, I'll I'll run away from evil and I'll seek what's going to make for peace. I want you to do that even if it costs you suffering. Well, that sort of changes the equation. No, no, no. It just helps you understand how serious I am about this equation. I legit don't want you to cause other suffering for people. I want you to seek peace. I want you to do good. I don't want you to run towards sin when things are getting hard for you. I want you to make sure that you're committed to turning away from evil, to seeking peace for others. And I want you, in a certain sense, to be able to defend the hope that you have when you're suffering. Because you start suffering, people are going to start paying attention. You've got a great life. People are going to think that you're only following God just like the beginning of the book of Job because he's been doing good things for you. So the problem is every single one of us enters in, not with all the the complexities of courtroom drama, but every single one of us enters into Job 1 and 2. And every single one of us goes through the same thought processes in our head of Job chapter 3 through chapter 37. And the question we have to ask ourselves is we're living out that drama all the time. I thought I was doing right. I thought things were going to work well, and then my kids didn't turn out the way that I wanted. I thought that I was doing well. I thought I had integrity at work, and now I don't have the job that I wanted. I thought that I was doing well. I thought that I was saving, and then the stock market crashed, or my inheritance went away, or something is just not working out. I, God, you said that if I use my words this way, my integrity, my work this way, my wealth this way, that you'd bless me, and it doesn't seem like there's any guarantees. And the guy from Ecclesiastes, he's going, ah, you get it now. The moment you think you're entitled to good things from God, you fundamentally miss who God is. He's the God of this creation, not the God of your imagination. He's a God who can do whatever he wants, not a God who you put a vending machine token in and then you get the thing you choose. And yet we hear... Over and over, I could never worship a God who, fill in the blank. Why? Because the fault finder is contending with the Almighty and saying, you've run the universe wrong. 38, 39, shut up. 40, 41, just look and stand in awe. And understand this fundamental point. He controls the stuff you can see and you don't understand. Do you get that he he controls invisible forces and this way of running the universe that allows for mercy and suffering to be at the heart of how he redeems? Because if we think the way we think when we suffer, we decide that the gospel cannot exist anymore and that's not Christian Christians suffer with hope why? back to 1 Peter so that we can when challenged then defend that hope and say God doesn't owe me anything he's done nothing but good and he is bigger and more powerful and stronger and wiser than I am therefore I will trust him and I want to present this to you not as though you're some stupid idiot because I get the struggle that you've got I want to present this to you gently. I'm going to suffer in this world. It is chaotic. It is powerful. It is mysterious. And yet God has made it good. And the only thing we can do is fear him and trust him at the end of the day. That's the presentation that comes back. And Job gets it in chapter 42, verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know you can do all things that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. So, who is this at highest counsel without knowledge? That was God's question to him. I have uttered things that I did not understand, things that were too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak, I will question in you, you will make known to me. He's quoting God back to him. I have heard of you by the hearing of ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes, which is probably gonna have a little asterisks by those words in yours because it's tough text to, 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 to get at but the, cl- the concept is clear I was so self-assured and whatever the opposite is that's where I stand right now I will trust you because only you ascertain the purpose of my suffering so the question we have to get to at the very end of this is how do we, how do we close this book let me just give you five quick ways to do this First, let's remember Job's sufferings, right? Because we're going to suffer. Let's remember we have an example ahead of us who suffered. This is the passage we looked at a couple weeks ago. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You've heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you've seen the purpose of the Lord. What? How the purpose is, how the Lord is vengeful and punitive? How he's indebted and he's obligated? No, how he's compassionate and merciful which is the message we should get about God at the end of the book of Job rather than anything we might have entered into the book with. Second thing we do is we remember Job's not just his sufferings, but his mistake and his friend's mistake. Remember, God is coming in in chapter 38, verse 1 and saying, my counsel has just been darkened. And these were words that had no knowledge. I just brought some to you. But this was problematic. Problematic. And so in our sufferings, we want to remember our example, but in our sufferings, we should also remember the pitfalls that are right there. We've just seen them marked out for us. And so we want to remember so that we don't make this kind of same mistake as well. And the fundamental way we do that, first point three, is we remember God's holiness. To use probably one of the, the nearest parallels in the Bible, Isaiah chapter 40, he says it this bluntly. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him? He's speaking of idolatry in the text, but essentially he's making the same fundamental point. I'm holy. I am separate. I am other And the goal that I have is to make you holy too, not to bring me and make me common with you. So remember Job's sufferings, his mistake, his holiness, or God's holiness, and we remember ultimately then God's freedom. Acts chapter 17 says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, is not served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself, gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. We remember God is free to do whatever he wants in this world. He's the one who knows so much more and the one who then has no obligation to anyone, can do whatever he wants. These are doctrinal categories of God's independence, his freedom, his, another one of these big seminary words, his aseity. He is untouched by obligation to us and so he's free to do whatever he wants and the question is then how is that God free of any obligation to us chosen to interact with us? One small point that we get from Job to kind of visit that question. Chapter 42 verse 7 after Job's last sort of yeah hey this was way too wonderful for me I don't know what I was talking about I'm so sorry. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz, the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. That doesn't mean everything Job said was right. But the only one who spoke any rightness about God, Allah, verse, or chapter 28, the only one who spoke anything right about God was Job. Elihu gets close. It's the three friends versus Job. Elihu was almost like the, the the you know sort of the act before the main act at the concert. He was the one to warm you up for God to speak. He's getting us ready. But God's angry at the other three friends. Because they're treating God as though he's obligated to do certain things. Very similar to the way Job has. But Job has said some things at least that were right about God. So what is Job asked to do? Let's get this straight for a sec. He's still in the pit. He's still covered with sores and ashes. He still has no money. He still has no reputation. He still has no family except for a wife. We have no idea what her disposition is at this point. And God says, I need you to bring some sacrifices. And Job's going to pray for you. And so they do. They bring sacrifices. They bring some gifts to Job. Job Uh, It sort of helps them with the sacrifices and then prays for them. And God hears Job's prayer and then sort of, you know, they're okay now. Then we read this, verse 10. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job's when or maybe even while he had prayed for his friends. See, the thing is, it's almost as though the only good Job could do for his friends comes as or through his suffering. And that point seems pretty profound because if you haven't picked up on it, there's a paradigm that's established in the book of Job that is fundamental to what we understand. It's not that suffering indicates whom God is cursing, in some senses, It's as though suffering indicates those God is using. Because the God who is independent sent the one who was blameless in every way to be able to come down and join Job in the pit, to suffer with Job like no one had, because no one deserved the exact opposite of the life that Jesus endured except for Jesus. And yet he didn't cling to his rights, neither in heaven nor on earth, but it was through suffering that he became a spokesperson for us. Do you get? That's what God chose to do. If the gospel of Jesus' arrival on the earth, if his sacrifice for us was stuff that God was indebted to do for us because we're so special and God just needs us, which is, by the way, why you will never hear some of those worship songs sung from this stage. The God is so impressed with you that he had to come and save you because he was so sad and, and lonely without you. That ain't the gospel. This is the foundation for it. God who is independent and unobligated is still 0.5 good. And that's the last thing we have to remember. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. When the goodness and loving kindness of God our savior appeared, he saved us according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. That's what our, God, our good God chose to do. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to take communion together. The worship team's going to teach us a, a song. We, we might have sung it once, we're not really quite sure if we've done this before. We're going to hear it again, and as we're hearing the song, uh, the elements are going to be distributed for communion. Because I think that's an appropriate way for us to wrap up our time here in the book of Job. So let's pray, and then we'll learn this song together. Father, I thank you for your help for all of us through these three books. I thank you, Lord, for your help in trying to unpack how different you are from us, both in your might and your knowledge and in your mercy and your compassion and your goodness. Lord, in a group even this size, it would be impossible for us to sum up our previous stories, our present sufferings, or future problems. And yet we know that we've had them and that we'll have them. And we know some in the here are suffering now too. Father, we see the danger. We've heard it, and we want to own it. We want to own it not just as coming from the world, but also coming from our own hearts, and we pray that you would continue to squeeze that out of us. And Lord, then take us as dry and empty sponges and saturate us with the love of God one more time, that you who could do anything you wanted didn't come to condemn us, but to save us. Thank you for loving us this way. In Jesus' name, amen.